Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And sometimes when I want to get started talking about what we're getting into, I really want to just say like, hey, hey, we're here. Hey, guys, it's Political Misfits. But I guess the professional thing is to start the same way every day. So here we go against the grain, except for the opening, which is always the same. (laughs) I don't know why it just tickles me. Sometimes I'm excited and sometimes you just, you know, say the same thing over and over. Well, sometimes sometimes there's so much news. You you can't wait to just jump in and start talking about it. And then sometimes, you know, it's a slower day or there are fewer stories, even if they're more in depth. And yeah, sometimes you have time to talk about things instead of having to leapfrog from one story to another. Uh, Today, what we will be talking about is uh, Rumble being pressured by France to dump Russian media from the platform. This is what Rumble CEO is saying. He's also saying, hell no, and we're going to take you to court over it. We are going to talk a little bit more about attempts to control information through social media. We're going to get into the really delayed and grudging resolution uh, to the election in Brazil. Finally, Uh, we are going to talk about the new Black Sea grain deal. Is it the same as the old deal? And will it last for about as much time? We're going to talk about B-52 bombers going to Australia and what China is going to think of that. We are going to talk about some missile tests by North and South Korea, a little tiny whisper of a story of, uh, you know, an influence operation based in China that Twitter took down. This stuff does not get the attention that it was getting back in, say, 2018. Uh, We are going to talk about whether a red wave is going to swamp the U.S. Congress after all. We're going to talk about threats from Iran, threats to Iran, the ongoing protests in Iran. We are going to talk about the outrageous hypocrisy of the U.S. stance on Cuba, including, you know, insisting on maintaining it on this uh, list of state sponsors of terror, despite the opinion consensus within our own intelligence community that that is idiotic. Uh, So, yeah, we got we got a lot to get into here, John. Yeah, it's it's one of those busy days. Sure is. The other thing that is uh, set to happen. Oh, and we're, of course, going to talk about the election in Israel, which I forgot to mention, which is the whole reason why you are there. And uh, you want to give us a little preview? Yeah, I think I would. Um, Turnout was was low, especially for the Arab parties, which essentially guaranteed a victory for Benjamin Netanyahu and three associated ultra-Orthodox and Zionist parties. Uh, 85% of the vote is counted, so it's not completely official yet. But Likud and uh, and their partners are expected to take 65 seats in the Knesset. They need 61 to form a government. Um, by Israeli standards, this is this is a, a huge victory. 65 seats is is very big, especially when there are between eight and ten parties, different parties that would be represented in parliament. I think the big story, though is not just that Netanyahu is coming back. The big story is that the left-wing parties not only did poorly, but one of them, Meretz, which has been around for decades, didn't even make the 3.25% threshold to get into the Knesset. It's finished yeah. as a party, as is Bilad, one of the uh, one of the Palestinian parties. This is a secular, a left-of-center Palestinian party, got about 1.9%. It also is finished. Uh, the other, the other notable development is 
is that a fascist party this is a this is this is a party that's so right wing that its leader was charged with terrorism two years ago for trying to murder Palestinians as he was driving down the road. He, he not only won election to the Knesset, but he's bringing five fascist colleagues with him too. So this is this is a new Israel. It's even more right wing than the previous right wing governments with Netanyahu at the helm and with a majority big enough to enact pretty much whatever he wants to enact. I have to say, John, I was listening intently to that until I saw this breaking news that Dan Snyder uh, has hired Bank of America to explore selling the Washington commanders. And now that's my biggest story. Wow, I hadn't seen that. Sorry, of course, Israel, I I had a comment to make. Ariel Gold yesterday uh, tweeted what I think was probably the best summary of this election. You know, Israelis are going to go to the polls to decide which which apartheid government they want, right? So I kind of see, you know, Uh, I think this is sort of what happens with the American left, too. It's hard to sort of be domestically left while you kind of ignore the the policies that affect your borders. Right. With the sort of taking into the idea that Israel has has a border with Palestine. So I did I did have an intelligent comment to make. I just was distracted by this football news. I got to tell you about this football news. I have a friend, Mike Manitos. He is. He and his father are the proverbial Greek lobby, right? Manitos and Manitos, very important lobbyists in Washington. Mm -hmm. He's got a brother who um, is also a lobbyist, but for Bank of America. And um, his brother, Tom, has season tickets to the commanders. He's had season tickets for 20 years. And every game he goes to, he holds up this big sign that says, sell the team. And a couple of weeks ago, Security went up to him and told him that they were throwing him out of the stadium. He said, I've been a I've been a season ticket holder for 20 years. They said, Mr. Snyder wants you out. And so he's banned. He's banned from the games now. And I'd like to think that Tom had something to do with this because he's the one in Washington who's been leading the fight to get Dan Snyder out. Congratulations, Tom. As long as he doesn't sell the team to Henry Kissinger, I'm happy. That's right. That's right. Um, The other big story (laughs) that we should definitely mention today is that we are all expecting the Federal Reserve to announce another rate hike. Uh, The consensus seems to be that it's going to be uh, 0.75 basis points. You know, we'll see. I think the announcement's going to come after our show ends. But of course, this is all being done in the name of taming inflation. And as the Washington Post puts it, This is the latest sign of how aggressively officials are fighting to slow the economy, even as the risks of a recession next year rise. Fed officials show no signs of backing down, and they've made clear that getting consumer prices down from the highest inflation rates in 40 years will require pain for households and businesses. What they mean by pain, of course, is throwing people out of work, uh, eating into their meager savings so demand can slow down. And all the papers of record have been wondering for some time now whether the Fed will be able to do this without causing a recession, even as other analysts point out that uh, recession is actually the point. And by many measures, we are already there. But the thing that bothers me, the mantra repeated here, uh, the the indication of inflation and the justification for these rates heights are, are prices, right? And yet nowhere in the Post story about what the Fed is trying to do again to bring prices down is a mention of, of corporate profits and price gouging. 
you have to go to a different part of the paper to see that. And I think that that should be right alongside any discussion of what the Fed is attempting to do, again, supposedly to achieve this goal. The New York Times uh, just yesterday uh, noted that alongside oil companies, whose uh, record profits we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, alongside them, food producers are making record profits in uh Mid-October, PepsiCo, whose prices for its drinks and chips were up 17 percent in the latest quarter from one year earlier levels, reported that its third quarter profit grew more than 20 percent. So profits growing by 20 percent, prices increasing by 17 percent. Coca-Cola reported profit up 14 percent from a year earlier, thanks to price increases. Chipotle, uh, who said prices by the end of this year would be nearly 15 percent higher than last year, reported a 26 percent profit increase this year. So these companies are all across the board raising prices far more than they need to. And they don't see any reason to change that. They're raking in money from McDonald's to Uber, and they don't anticipate any drop in demand. This is according to a different uh, New York Times piece that was, uh, you know, uh, covering the trends from recent corporate earnings calls. So they plan to keep raising prices in the months ahead. And so you have to wonder then what the Fed is doing, right? If your idea is to bring prices down, Gas prices aren't coming down. Food prices aren't coming down. Restaurant prices aren't coming down. So what is the point here? And what happens is you have a segment of the population that remains relatively insulated from the immediate effects of these changes, right? They they can swallow an 8% increase in food costs and restaurant costs without feeling a, a ton of pain, even though because of these interest rate hikes, They've been priced out of home ownership, you know, maybe forever, right? So you have a class of people that's relatively comfortable, but never going to achieve financial stability. Uh, and then you have the people who are making, uh, maybe making minimum wage, maybe making a half again as much as the minimum wage, who are still living on the edge because our minimum wage is, is so outrageous. And this kind of situation could be catastrophic for them, right? You have medical debt at the wrong time. You have credit card debt at the wrong time. And these people's lives, uh, the trajectory of their lives are changed perhaps forever. And you think, what are you doing, right? If this is about prices, which the White House would like us to think, you know, where the Fed, you know, we, we're the Fed's independent, but we support their efforts to combat inflation and inflation is all about prices. This is not working, right? It just feels like We are watching a big transfer of wealth upward being facilitated, right? Prices aren't coming down. Interest rates are going up. Uh, People are going to be trapped as renters for years. It's going to take financial stability away from families for years. It's not going to do the thing that uh, it's supposed to do. It's just going to inflict pain on people who can least afford it by throwing them out of their work and causing them to, you know, eat into their savings and eat into their paychecks. And it's just terrible. I mean, I don't, again, I, I'm not an economist, right? But like, I, it bothers me when over and over we see, well, the Fed's got to do this to bring prices down. And we see these companies who are setting the prices going, eh, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. Like, <laughs> these are two parallel trains. They're not going to, they're not going to hit it. It's going to take a, you know, to continue this metaphor, it, it will take politics, not monetary policy to, to make these, you know, to make these paths collide. I don't know. I, what a it, world we live in. It's so sad, man. It's so sad. 
I just it it's so frustrating. And this these these are the sort of long like if you want to if you read the entire paper, you will see these different um things, right? If you read a couple of different papers, but no one's doing that. And it just, again, it, it does show that we get a really in, incomplete picture of how our economy works uh, from, from our mainstream media, I think. Anyway, that was yeah, my little I rant. think you're exactly right. The other thing I wanted no, to um, mention, you know, Brittany Griner's wife uh, gave her first TV interview um, I think, was it this morning or yesterday morning? She gave her first TV interview I, I yesterday. I did not know that. Yeah, on right. The View. I, I missed I mean, she just said she was disheartened at Britney's appeal being denied and that she was in disbelief. Uh, she said uh, she thinks the, the, the punishment is disproportionate to the crime, which, of course, I, I agree of uh, with. Although she also said, you know, every state, every country has their own rules. Uh, but... She basically said all our eggs now are in the basket of the U.S. government to see how important they decide this issue is and to see how much work they actually try to do on it. And it, it just is so sad. Right. Uh, I think it yeah. was I think I actually saw our, our frequent guest Aaron Good yesterday asking what what is the U.S. government actually doing? Right. How what, what are are there negotiations underway? Are well, there discussions that, underway? What, what is happening with the case of Brittany? That's Griner? a good question. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's it's one that the administration has not addressed. You know, we've seen these leaks to the AP and to New York Times way back when that there were talks about a prisoner exchange and then those leaks just ended. So for all intents and purposes, that's a message from the Biden administration that they're not doing anything. Yeah. And it's I mean, this is obviously political, right? You know, you can say it, 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 it is. And so then it will again, it will require a political solution and the political solution can't just be to. Uh, uh, I don't know, w wade around, right? It's just, she's, yeah. uh, it's so upsetting. I also saw that there was a, um, I don't know, CNN is sort of trying to, the CNN analyst was trying to make this about women in sports, uh, how like women oh. in sports are vulnerable. I'm not quite sure that's exactly, I mean, she, she says, does anyone challenge the reality that Griner never would have been in Russia uh, where she gets a star's salary to play for the Russian team she plays for if it weren't for the gender and pay gap in the United States. It's like, well, maybe. OK, well, that oh. seems like an American problem, right? Because as you say, she's getting yeah, a star's right. salary to play <laughs> to play in Russia. But she is an American star, right? It's not as though right. uh, she's a a lower tier or lower ability player in the United States who has to go, uh, you know, goes overseas to find a place on a on a slightly weaker team. Um, so, you know, I do think, I do think there's an argument to be made that of course, if she was an NBA player, uh, making, you know, tens of millions of dollars in a season, I think, you know, I, I think this political situation might be different. I think there probably would be more pressure on the U S government to do something. Uh, but I don't know that this is entirely about the fact that she's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it's not, uh, I don't think it's separate from her gender, but I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the angle really. Uh, that that makes this make the most sense. Yeah. Anyway, I yeah, guess this is a complicated situation, and and you're right. I mean, a lot of it is is sort of dependent on the situation in the United States. Yeah. There's a reason why she had to go to Russia to make a living. Yeah. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to you know I want to keep her name in the news also because I think it is just such a it is such a shame and such a a tragedy what is happening to her. Uh, I don't think, you know, 
Oh, sure. Ideally, uh, Russia also changes its uh, laws regarding marijuana and the penalties attached to those laws. Uh, but that's not a thing that we can control here. But there is something that we can control, you know, or that our government can control. And that's, uh, you know, find, finding some kind of uh, path for negotiations, finding some kind of trade to make. All right. I guess we should get to our other big stories. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk more about what's going on in Israel, in the Black Sea, with Rumble and elsewhere. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears poised for a strong comeback. With 85% of the vote counted from yesterday's election, Netanyahu's Likud party appears to have captured between 30 and 32 seats in the 120-seat Knesset, while ultra-Orthodox and Zionist parties allied with Likud appear to have won another 30 to 33 seats. That gives Netanyahu a comfortable working majority. The final tallies will be known in the next day or maybe two. The United States and Saudi Arabia are concerned that Iran may launch an attack on Saudi Arabia's energy infrastructure in the country's eastern province. A U.S. intelligence official said, or maybe leaked, that the Iranians are angry at Saudi Arabia's blanket coverage of the domestic uprising taking place in Iran following the death in custody of a woman who had her hair uncovered. An Iranian government official accused the United States and Saudi Arabia of instigating the uprising and said that Saudi Arabia would pay a price for its interference. And Russia has decided to allow Ukrainian grain shipments through the Black Sea after all. The announcement came after what appears to have been quick Turkish diplomatic intervention. We are joined by Elijah Manier. He's a veteran war journalist with more than 35 years of experience in places like Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. And Elijah, I can't think of a better person to answer some of these difficult, complicated questions. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin with Israel. It seems clear that Benjamin Netanyahu will again be Israel's prime minister. This time it appears that he'll have what is by Israeli standards really a commanding majority in the Knesset, at least five seats, maybe even six. The results so far show that the Israeli left is all but dead. The left-wing Meretz party fell below the 3.25% threshold for representation in the Knesset. Labor will win just a couple of seats. First, tell us what you think this means for Israeli policy going forward. What changes should we expect to see from a prime minister, Netanyahu, who really can act in an unfettered way? Well, actually, I have a problem in defining uh, the government of Yair Lapid and the government of Netanyahu. So we're talking about the extreme right represented by Yair Lapid, even if they call themselves center-right, and the extreme, extreme right led by Benjamin Netanyahu. So it's true that Netanyahu is about to win 65 seats, which is four more seats than the number needed for a majority. 
But for the 5, 5.5 million or 6 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, they are completely ignored from the political system. So they understand that they have to expect little, if not hard, changes in the coming future with Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing Likud party leading the Knesset with his religious Zionist far-right coalition. We're talking about uh, Bezalel Smotrich and Ben Gvir, who both won 14 seats. And the problem is Ben Gvir is known that he's the one who advocates to expel any disloyal citizen from Israel. So we can imagine if he becomes a minister, him who is accused of discrimination, racism, against anyone who is not Jew. So at the end of the day, there are small parties. The kingmakers maybe are becoming, uh, will be the small parties. And uh, the uh, Arab party has won, I think, around 14, 10 seats, not 14, there were 14. And uh, they can play a role in becoming perhaps kingmakers. Now, Netanyahu supporters would like to see uh, limited Palestinian attacks that has increased in 2022 dramatically, increase of settlers building more freedom of power to settlers in the West Bank and a free hand to uh, extremists. I don't think the Palestinians are very happy to see Benjamin Netanyahu back to power. Tell me what you think is is the final fate or will be the final fate of the Israeli left. You know, labor was so important for so many decades leading Israel. And uh, and Meretz, beginning in the early 1990s, was also an important governmental partner uh, for left-wing governments. They're essentially finished. Has Israel been pushed permanently to the right, do you think, where now we've, as you said correctly just a moment ago, we talk about right-wing governments, far right-wing governments, and extreme right-wing governments. Benny Gantz, Naftali Bennett, and uh, Yair Lapid, they, if they win 55 seats and they get the Arabs with them and they get some minorities, they can represent a serious threat to Benjamin Netanyahu who may become the prime minister, but for how long? I mean, we saw that so many governments uh, were changed and so many elections, four to five elections in one year, that is unheard of in Israel. So I don't think next year is going to be so easy for Benjamin Netanyahu, particularly when there are other factors playing here. So there's a factor of the Americans. We know that Joe Biden and Netanyahu are not really very close uh, one another, even if they have to work together. We know that the Arab countries were very unhappy with Netanyahu uh, during his last period of uh, ruling. So there are many factors still in play because the uh, the other side led by Yair Lapid is very close behind Netanyahu. So we have to wait and see how the Israeli internal dynamic is going to play. And Elijah, do you do you really see a role for this Ben Gavir and his racist, anti-Palestinian, homophobic, extreme right-wing uh, beliefs? Do you believe that Netanyahu will will offer him some sort of a, a ministry 
in order to win the support of this this awful racist party? With 14 seats at the Knesset, Netanyahu cannot but offer uh, Ben-Gvir a position and a ministerial position in his new government. He can't but bring him in because he we saw him on the television yesterday evening how he was celebrating Netanyahu's advance on Yair Lapid. So inevitably, he is part of the government and he's going to dictate his rules and his conditions because without him, Netanyahu cannot become the prime minister. I want to ask you also about um, something that Netanyahu said last week. He said that if he were to be elected prime minister, he would tear up the new maritime border agreement with Lebanon. It was just negotiated a week and a half or two weeks ago. It's the first maritime border that Lebanon and Israel have ever agreed on. Uh, Of course, Yair Lapid was responsible for, for negotiating this. The agreement was really a major step forward in regional stability and would allow Lebanon at least a little bit of natural gas revenue from the Cypriot field. Why would Netanyahu want to backtrack on something that has literally no downside for Israel? Well, this is a very important question you're making here. First of all, we need to understand the nature of the Israelis. Normally, they don't give up anything without a war. So through negotiation, they've never given anything to other, particularly in the Middle East. We've seen how the Oslo Agreement, the two states, Palestinian and Israeli, never happened since 1993. So these, uh, we see the Golan Heights, uh, how it is occupied by the Israelis in Syria. So the Israelis are not known to do such a concession, even if uh, the uh, limit of the uh, maritime area belongs to Lebanon. What happened is the war in Ukraine, the U.S. and EU detrimental decisions to impose sanctions on Russia that had a boomerang effect on us in Europe and on the rest of the world. And that is forcing the U.S. to look for other alternatives to bring energy to Europe. Uh, Israel, its cooperation with Egypt is on this level uh, not really very important, but quite uh, it can play a role because Israel has gas and joining with Egypt, they can provide gas to Europe. Now, Hezbollah said, if you don't draw the line and we go to uh, a maritime settlement, there is no gas instru- uh, extraction from the Karish oil uh, gas field. That crippled Israel production of gas that the Americans didn't want to see. Now, Netanyahu, of course, during his electoral campaign, accused Lapid of being a coward. However, we know that all politicians, when during their campaign, say something, and after when they are in power, they do something else. However, Netanyahu is someone who's capable of uh, putting obstacles in the deal. And because the total company, the French total company, will be in charge, and because Lebanon needs at least four to five years to start extracting gas from uh, the Kana field in Lebanon that is bordering Karish field, so Netanyahu has an ample time to play with the French and to put pressure on the total company to delay the extraction of gas. Meanwhile, he can extract from Karish because that he would say, this is my border 
and we have agreed, and it's not my fault. So he can find a way, and Netanyahu is very good and brilliant in finding twisted way to go around any deal and not abide by it. Very complicated. Netanyahu was cut out of the Abraham Accords, and the UAE apparently is worried that he'll do something to turn back the progress that's been made diplomatically between Israel and uh, and the Arab countries, but primarily the UAE and Bahrain. What do you see on the horizon here? Do you think Netanyahu will continue to court the Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, or do you think he'll take a different approach? Oh, well, if we look at the process of normalization agreement between the oil-rich Gulf countries and Israel, it has begun, well, honestly speaking, before Netanyahu came to power in 2009, and it was developed behind the scene, under the table, etc., but it was signed in 2020 with the uh, Emirati and the Bahraini during Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu era. However, Netanyahu didn't visit the Gulf and he was delaying all the time uh, his visits and the visit preventing anyone from his government to uh, go to the Gulf countries. However, we know that he leaked an information that he met Mohammed bin Salman in Naum on the Red Sea, and uh, that was an information that he gave voluntarily to tell us that he is meeting with the Saudis. Now, because Lapid visited the Emirates and because that paved the road to other Israeli officials to exchange visits, supply the Arab state with defense missiles, and we know that uh, at the Emirati there are Israeli defense missiles, and we know that it's the intelligence technology. We know that the government of Lapid paid, paid several visits to the Gulf countries. I don't think Netanyahu is going to uh, hold himself back. There is no reason for that. But he will be very careful not to give Joe Biden any victory because the two men don't get on together. And Netanyahu will be certainly uh, doing everything in his power to support the return of Donald Trump. I think you're exactly right on that. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, Rumble. The CEO of Rumble, which carries this show, of course, said in response to complaints yesterday from the French government that the platform would not stop carrying RT and Sputnik despite complaints that it was a haven for what they called Russian propaganda. I thought the US war on Russian media was over in the spring even, but apparently it's not. Where do you see this issue going? Are RT and Sputnik going to have to try to push back against Western censorship forever? Oh yes, because it seemed the people in the US administration, including their European allies, have no clue what the First Amendment is. I mean, freedom of speech, uh, the freedom for the press, it's really very embarrassing to see Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, we're talking about YouTube video, Meta Platform, uh, the Roku company, who all restricted the access of RT and Sputnik. And they label anyone on Twitter today uh, as a Russian government affiliated. If you give an interview to a Russian uh, TV on a regular basis or uh, radio or media and the, or Sputnik. So... These people are really sick because if they are, they don't have anything to fear, they allow the alternative media to speak its mind and to state 
what is going on. But because they are afraid and because they push a false narrative, uh, because they don't want anyone to counter their argument, uh, yes, you will have to suffer and you will continue trying to push back. The Intercept had a piece out earlier this week saying that the Department of Homeland Security has for years been looking at disinformation and malinformation and how to rein them in. That's what led to the aborted creation earlier this year of the so-called disinformation governance board. Do you think the government should have a role in policing the news? And if so, what should that role be? Well, I remember a word said by Jeffrey Sachs a few uh, weeks ago when he said, we in the United States and in Europe have the most democratic countries and system in the world, but have the most violent and brutal uh, behavior and uh, warmongers outside our country. Well, it seems he's partially right, because it is true for the second part, which I fully agree with him. But for the first part, I don't think we are so democratic. And I remember during David Cameron in the UK, uh, when there were manifestations, the first thing he said, he's going to shut down Facebook and Twitter. So uh, there is no democracy here where we live. We in the West live in a state of democracy that is cherry picking, is just really um, very carefully selected and they tell us that we live in a democratic state. Oh, if you don't like it, go and live in Russia or go and live in China or go and live in Iran. So they throw to us and, well, no, I was uh, here. I'm living here. I was born here and I'm staying here. But it doesn't mean I can't criticize your system. Well, when we have a government make, uh, creating a ministry to uh, uh, fight the disinformation and the misinformation, I think they, they, it's a, they have a di very difficult job because they have to start by their own propaganda. Indeed. The Russian and Turkish governments made a joint announcement yesterday saying that Ukrainian grain shipments would be permitted to depart through the Black Sea. The Russians had walked the policy back a day earlier. What do you think this decision means? And, and tell me your thoughts about the Turkish role in all of this. Turkey is trying to play a positive role in all that because Turkey is saying to the West, instead of you going buying the Russian gas from India or from China, I can sell it to you, which is very close to you and even a bit cheaper. But you're paying for four times the gas from Norwegian uh, companies and from the Americans and uh, other new partners, I can sell it to you. So uh, Turkey is playing a very positive role in uh, between uh, the uh, West and Russia by bringing the two parties together. Because at the end of the day, no matter how long the war is going to last, they have to sit around the table and talk. Now, Turkey offered that in the past. They've started the negotiation, but the Ukrainians uh, were not serious because they were told off by the Americans. Now, the uh, Turkey is also in a geopolitical uh, strategic position on the Bosphor, and it is the channel of all the ships leaving Ukraine and uh, Sevastopol toward the rest of the world. And the, uh, Turkey doesn't want the West to accuse Russia from uh, starving the world. However, we know that the Ukrainians are selling 
the rich country its grain to cash all this money and to soften the burden on the West because it's a West who is financing this war and pushing for this war. So Turkey is trying to tell both sides that this war is going to end one day. Let us start talking. Let us try to minimize the tension. Let us not go to a major uh, war where we don't know how it's going to go. So it, I, I think Turkey in a position where it is a NATO country, it is on the door of Europe, it has very good relationship with the West and very good relationship with Russia, is in an excellent position to play this role. Finally, Elijah, I want to ask you about developments in Iran. 1,000 people went on trial today in Iran for participating in demonstrations, but many of them have been charged with capital crimes, including murder in the death of a policeman. An Iranian official said this morning that the trials would be quick. To me, that means that there will be a lot of executions in the near future. At the same time, both the United States and Saudi Arabia announced very dramatically yesterday that they believed Iran was planning an attack on Saudi Arabia in response to really what's been blanket Saudi news coverage of the uprising in Iran. And this was accompanied by a direct threat from the Iranian government. Do you believe there is an actual possibility of an Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia? The Saudis believe that such an attack would come in the heavily Shia Muslim Eastern province, but it seems to me that that would be a death wish. Why would the Iranians do this? Is it just to divert attention at home from the demonstrations? Well, this is a very good question. Actually, there are many ramifications to this question. I don't know if you have the time to hear it. However, I'll try to be quick. First of all, in Iran, when officials come out, we have to determine who is the spokesman of the government and who is an official speaking out of his mind. And that is very common in Iran. They have a lot of bavardo, and it is not always the official position of the state, of the government. Secondly, the source comes from U.S., intelligence sources and Saudi intelligence sources. So we're not talking about something that has leaked as a valid point. For me, it is a very good coincidence when the 23 OPEC plus countries decided to reduce their oil production by 2 million barrels starting from this current month of November. And that drove the Americans completely crazy. So what the Americans are saying to the Saudis you need our protection. And if you want to be protected against Iran, you will have to come to us. And if you want to come to us, you have to do what we want, or at least not go against us. And it is against us for you to uh, stop and to uh, reduce the oil production by 2 million barrels, particularly when we know that Russia requested the reduction of 1 million and Saudi said 2 million. Now, the Americans took the first step to pull out the Patriot missile from Saudi Arabia to consider Qatar as the main interlocutor in the Middle East. And that upset a lot the Saudis. And the Americans said, even before the election of Joe Biden, that Saudi Arabia is a pariah state. And this is how Joe Biden is going to deal with it. So that upset the relationship between the two countries. So the Americans are telling the Saudis again if you want my protection, you have to come to me. And for this information to come just 
at the gate of the midterm is not a coincidence. And I don't think Iran for the last 43 years has ever started a war against any country and will not start now against Saudi Arabia because this is not the first time there are manifestation riots or uh, Islamic State takfiri terrorist attacks uh, in Iran. This is not the first time that there are dissidents in Iran who carry out assassination or intelligence service like CIA, like in the Mossad. This is something that is really déjà vu in Iran and is not going, certainly not going to trigger a new war in the Middle East when there is a major war going around that is more or less a worldwide war between the two superpowers over the U.S. dominance of the world. I don't believe in this news. Well, thank you to the always excellent and insightful Elijah Manier. He's a veteran war journalist with more than 35 years of experience in places as diverse as Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Libya, Sudan, and Yugoslavia. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break, so stay tuned. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk now about developments in East Asia, in particular uh, bombers in Australia and the Chinese response to that. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about new internet influence campaigns that have been uncovered, and we'll talk about North and South Korea sending each other messages with missiles. Joining us for all of this is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. Thanks for coming back, K.J. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So earlier this week, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation reported that the U.S. plans to deploy six B-52 bombers to Australia and to build dedicated facilities for them at Australia's Tyndall Air Force Base near Darwin. Uh, The story notes that the bombers are part of a larger upgrade of defense assets across northern Australia, including an expansion of the Pine Gap intelligence base, which would play a vital role in any conflict with Beijing. Australia has always been, it feels like, the turning point of any, uh, quote-unquote, pivot to Asia. I remember back during the Obama administration, uh, the pivot to Asia that we got then, which was presented as a renewal of friendly engagement, also began with the deployment of a bunch of U.S. troops to Australia. Uh, So how much of an escalation would the presence of these bombers in Australia be to China, and what's China's response been? Uh, I think it's incredibly escalatory. I mean, clearly what the U.S. is trying to do, I mean, it started this with the Quad, as you point out, and then AUKUS. And what it is trying to do is it's trying to spread out or disperse its uh, offensive platforms around China as far as possible. That is to expand the theater of war as far as possible in order to prevent or to um, uh, to uh, to bypass China's uh, effective A2AD uh, defenses. China has uh, anti-access area defense capacities that involve pinpoint uh, missiles or precision missile strikes against invaders. 
And what the U.S. is trying to do is it's trying to expand the war theater. So you see exercises in uh, in Korea, you see exercises in the Philippines and the South China Sea uh, from, uh, you know, planes attacking from Germany and from Australia. And it's trying to spread this out. It's essentially what we call the third offset. We've already spoke, spoken about this. This is a practice of dispersion against precision. And of course, the Australians are going along with this because they have a long history of being uh, poodles to U.S. American policy design. I mean, John Pilger says that, speaking of the Australians, I watched these monsters destroy village after village in Asia, life upon life. Australia's groveling elite is now beyond shame as it propels a nation, Australia, with no enemies to the front line of a coming war with China, a paramount crime, surely. I think John Pilger really uh, hits the nail on this. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is what was, uh, you know, was noted by uh, an expert who is an anti-nuclear activist and a public policy researcher in the in the story saying this, this would, you know, it indicates to China that Australia is willing to be the tip of the spear. And I wonder if you, you know, what you think people should understand from the fact that this is happening under a labor government in Australia. Well, I think it just tells us that Australia doesn't have a sovereign government as far as foreign policy is concerned. Remember, you mentioned Pine Gap. Well, the last time Australia tried to remove, uh, you know, the U.S. base on the listening station on Pine Gap, that was in 1974. And they had their government overthrown. That was uh, Gough Whitlam, who had actually opened relations with China in 1971 and 1972. Since then, Australia has always been an understudy and a subcontractor to U.S. foreign policy. You see that with Kevin Rudd, who was ousted when he wouldn't go along with the Quad, and now he's gotten on with the game, and he's all uh, about China bashing. And you see this with the current Albanese government. It is all about escalation against China, and it fundamentally boils down to this imperial relationship that the Five Eyes have with each other, and also their deep and profound Racism. This is a settler colonial state built on genocide, and it is deeply racist, even against its own immigrants. I had a colleague named John Diakopoulos in the Australian embassy, high-ranking official. I asked him what he was going to do with his career. He said, I'm getting out of the Australian you know, you know, diplomatic corps because I cannot go any higher. And I was expecting him to become ambassador. He said, no. I'm Greek. There's no way I can get higher. I'm not Anglo. Wow. Mindset of these uh, Australian uh, imperialist uh, settler colonial uh, Anglo's. The other question I have is, you know. Uh, it sort of complicates this idea that economic relationships uh, inform political relationships, right? And I, I wanted to talk about Australia's relationship with China because China is Australia's largest two-way trading partner. Uh, it seems like the shares of each other in the other's market have been falling. Uh, but, you know, there's this perception that China and Australia have a have a sort of closer relationship or a more interdependent relationship than China and the United States. But China is also the U.S.'s largest two-way trading partner, and that hasn't prevented our increasingly hostile stance. And so I wonder how, you know, uh, 
how people should understand the fact that, you know, both of these countries, the United States and, and Australia, have very important economic relationships with China that they are apparently willing to jeopardize uh, by this, you know, with this continuing um, really hostile rhetoric and, and more than rhetoric, these hostile moves. You know, I think it's very, very foolish. I mean, Australia has what? It's three, maybe four, five percent of its economy's manufacturing. It is in incredibly dependent on China for finished goods. 60% of Australia's economy is finance and services. It is not. It's a wealthy country, but in certain ways, it is not a very developed country in terms of its own industry and economy. Highly dependent on China. It does $121 billion worth of trade with China. But uh, on the pressure of the United States, it started to strip out the perfectly good uh, 5G networks that Huawei and ZTE were installing in Australia. This is purely under U.S. pressure because we now know that there was absolutely nothing wrong. They were fantastic uh, systems and, uh, and a very, very good price. But once again, it comes back to this kind of subservient mentality where it will do whatever the U.S. tells it to do, whether it harms itself or rather whether it harms the people, the Australian citizens, who are really the people who are going to be suffering from this. The Albanese uh, and the Kevin Rudds, uh, these people will be fine. It's the Australian people will be suffering. And I think that is the fundamental flaw with quote-unquote Western economies, is they do not do what is in the interest of their own people, of their own country. They do what's in the interest of the ruling global elite as dictated by Washington. I wanted to ask just quickly also what you make of this uh, announcement by Twitter that it has taken down three China-based networks it says were attempting to interfere in American politics in the months leading up to the midterm elections by amplifying politically polarizing topics. Uh, if the story is the same stuff these stories always contain. The activity is never formally attributed to a government, but the takeaway, of course, is that the Chinese government is behind it. Uh, the story says two of these three networks favored the U.S. right, one skewed left. It just is, it's odd to me that you would, I mean, the, there's not much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans when it comes to China. And so it seems sort of silly to me to think that the Chinese government would be invested in, you know, uh, ensuring that candidates from one party or the other are elected in this midterm cycle when, you know, uh, their positions are basically the same. I don't know. I, I wanted uh, to ask what you make of this, you know, the latest entry into the foreign election interference log. You know, I think this is uh, grasping for straws. They're trying to make up something and then, you know, see if anything sticks. Throw something against the wall, see any, if anything sticks. I mean, you know, China understands that regardless of who is elected, uh, the U.S. policy is of a single mind, which it sees China as the uh, pacing threat, uh, essentially the official enemy of the United States. It will not make one ounce of difference, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Green, Independent. They're all out to get China. And it has to do with the fundamental geotectonic shifts that are happening on the planet. So to think that some China-based account, unattributed, called Hot Bay, is trying to influence uh, America's midterms, uh, you know, by, you know, what, uh, you know, a few 
tweets here and there. Absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. And I think it's you know shameful on Twitter to continue to carry water for the national security state in this uh, clearly offensive and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, it really insults the intelligence of, of the general public. Finally, I, I want to ask about what is happening uh, in, in South Korea. The U.S. and South Korea are in the midst of their largest ever air drills. North Korea has made it clear over and over that it sees these drills as a provocation that requires a response. And it responded in part with a barrage of missile tests, which South Korea responded to with the test of its own. Uh, a missile apparently landed near the border. And uh, on one hand, these tests and these provocations and the warnings that follow them have become commonplace, right? Like it used to be breaking news when North Korea tested a missile and now it barely gets a mention. But I wonder if that means we are sort of becoming complacent to a very real danger. Well, I think the danger is very, very real. Uh, I don't think we should get complacent to it. Uh, I think that North Korean responses have to do with extraordinarily aggressive U.S. exercises which have not stopped since August. The U.S. does, you know, the largest, one of the largest exercises, and then it goes off and does exercises with, with Japan and South Korea, and then it does exercises with the Philippines and with Korea, and then it does this set of, you know, air sortie exercises, what, 1,600 sorties that they're doing over a few days. I mean, this is horrifying for the North Koreans who... Every time this happens, they have to deploy troops away from farming and harvesting and go into, you know, battle stations. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, trauma-inducing, and that's the point. But the U.S. has this plan, Op Plan 5015, which is all about the decapitation of the, uh, of the North Korean command and control and the leadership. And if it were to happen, it would happen with these types of sorties. And so uh, North Korea is displeased, trying to make its displeasure known you know, with this barrage of missiles. And also, you know, the Koreans have a long history of the development of missiles. This is nothing new. If you go to the uh, Doksu Palace in, in Korea and you go through the main gate, you'll see a little cart, and it looks like the cross between a Chinese medicine chest and an ice cream cart. And if you look carefully, you realize that it's a mobile missile launcher that was invented in the 15th century. So they've been at it for a long time. <laughs> North Korea is not going to stop its uh, missile activity. It sees it as a life and death issue. It's trying to get the U.S. to back down. But clearly what the U.S. is trying to do is push things over the brink, create yet another trigger and increase the pressure on China. Because North Korea is not the issue. Uh, North Korea is a stalking horse for putting pressure on China. And no update from the Biden administration on its policy with regard to, to North Korea. Um, it's it's more of the same, which is to say that uh, they're saying that, you know, North Korea must denuclearize and then we'll maybe consider one or two things and discussion. That's a no-go. Uh, North Korea is seeing what happened to Libya. Uh, this is essentially a plan to say to North Korea, we're not interested and we're just going, going to continue to escalate. Wendy Sherman and some other people in the administration threatened North Korea with massive retaliation if it launched a nuclear attack. But the simple fact is that North Korea has set itself up that if it is attacked, it will retaliate with nuclear forces. This is not going to work. This is madness. All of this stuff has been war-gamed out since the 1950s. And I'm, I'm, I'm bewildered 
as to why the United States is not able to dust off those man- manuals uh, and policies, understand that this is getting us nowhere, unless it simply wants nuclear war. Yes. Yep. That was K.J. No, a journalist, veteran, and expert on the geopolitics of Asia-Pacific region. Uh, K.J., thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Pleasure. Uh, We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits, but I did want to say there is some uh, pretty exciting breaking news that appears, this is according to the African Union, that uh, the federal government of Ethiopia and the TPLF have agreed on a permanent cessation of hostilities. Uh, this is just yeah, a week. I love the word permanent. There. Yes. I mean, I think this was a lot more than uh, than people anticipated a week ago when when these started, especially since they got off to a bit of a rocky start. So we'll have to see, uh, you know, how this is implemented and how this plays out. But uh, it is pretty nice to have positive breaking news. Right. That That doesn't happen as often as it should. We're going to take a quick break here and talk a little more about Cuba, about U.S. politics, about Ukraine and what a path to peace might actually look like. All that coming up here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The past several days have seen an uptick in fighting in Ukraine. At the same time, the Western media is continuing its baseless claims that the Russian military leadership is drawing up plans to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. The result is more and more Ukrainian requests for assistance, which Washington, of course, is happy to meet. And earlier this week, we learned that there are uniformed U.S. military advisors in Ukraine, just like there were in Vietnam at the start of that war. In other news, the Biden administration announced yesterday a new program to lower energy costs for families. The move is meant to offset higher prices resulting from the Western cutoff of Russian gas. Energy rationing has already taken effect in Western Europe. We mentioned earlier in the show that tensions are rising <coughs> excuse me, sharply between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran has warned the Saudis to cease their blanket coverage of demonstrations in Iran, and Riyadh told Washington yesterday that it fears an imminent Iranian attack on its oil facilities in eastern Saudi Arabia. And in political news, 538.com has changed its prediction for the first time and is now saying that Republicans will likely win both the House and the Senate dealing a severe blow to the Biden administration and putting into doubt any chances of passing meaningful legislation or approving federal judges. We're joined by Medea Benjamin. She's the co-founder of the peace group Code Pink. She's also the author of a whole bunch of books, including her latest, which is called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, which she authored with Nick Davies. Welcome back, Medea. Hey, nice to be on with you. So happy to have you. And there's so much to talk about. So let's start with Ukraine. It seems to me that the propaganda, (coughs) 
<laughs> Forgive me. The propaganda is flying fast and furious. We've seen this uptick in fighting over the past several days, and we continue to hear accusations coming from the West that the Russians are planning to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. What are your thoughts, not just on nukes, of course, but on the use of propaganda in this conflict? It seems that there's a lot of propaganda that's that's taking hold in the mainstream media. Well, you know how, John, that war is uh, always accompanied by propaganda on all sides. Uh, no one wants to talk about the fact that there is no winning in this war or that they might be losing a war. Uh, remember how many times we were told, uh, whether it's Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan, that victory was around the corner and then, of course, all the propaganda leading up to the wars that make people uh, start being cheerleaders for wars that are not in their interest. And this is exactly what's been happening around the war in Ukraine, where Americans, even in one poll, which I don't believe for a minute, but uh, the poll saying that Americans are willing to pay higher prices for their energy costs uh, if it means supporting Ukraine. Now, you know, once their bills start coming in, I think they'll feel very differently but that kind of tells you the level of propaganda that Americans uh, would even say to pollsters, yes, uh, we're willing to take it in our pocketbooks for the people of Ukraine, uh, when really do the American people care where the line in Donbass is going to be drawn? I don't think so. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Medea, what do you make of the fact that uniformed American personnel are in Ukraine as so-called advisors. This is exactly how the Vietnam War began. Way back in 1958, 1959, the Eisenhower administration sent these uniformed military advisors to South Vietnam. Am I overreacting or is this a, pre a precursor to something that could turn bad quickly? Of course you're not overreacting because we've seen it before and we're seeing how the U.S. is just getting deeper and deeper into this war in Ukraine. We just talked about propaganda and how the Ukrainians are supposedly winning. Uh, but yet, I think there's so much concern uh, because those that really are in the military and know how these things go uh, say that there is a stalemate, um, that the U.S. is getting deeper and deeper involved in this. Uh, having military personnel is a very dangerous uh, escalation, as are all of the other ways that the U.S. is getting sucked into sending not only more weapons in volume, uh, but more lethal weapons. So it is very dangerous, especially when there is this sentiment out there in the mainstream media and echoed by politicians um, that there is a possibility for Ukraine to claw back every inch of territory uh, that Russians or Russian supporters now have, including Crimea. And that just means that if the U.S. really is go going to go for that and pushing Ukraine to go for that, uh, I see nothing but um, more danger and U.S. A direct uh, confrontation with Russia. Medea, I'm dying to hear about the results of a meeting that you and other members of Code Pink had at the State Department on the issue of state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, Cuba has been on this stupid list for decades, um, wrongly so. 
Cuba doesn't sponsor terrorism. Can you tell us a little bit about what transpired during that meeting? And I'd love to hear your thoughts also on why the Biden administration didn't jump to reestablish and renormalize relations with Cuba as soon as they were elected to office. Well, John, let me just connect the issues we were talking about with the Cuba issue, because uh, the U.S. is just going on and on about how uh, Russia is violating uh, all kinds of international law, which indeed it is doing. Uh, but then just today at the United Nations, country after country are getting up because there's a vote tomorrow uh, to condemn the U.S. for violation of international law when it comes to Cuba. And there are uh, heads of state and, and uh, delegations that are saying, if U.S. is indeed a democracy and believes in, in international law, uh, then why does it ignore the overwhelming, virtually unilateral call for 30 years now, uh, 30 times that this has come up at the U.N., uh, for the U.S. to get rid of this embargo? Uh, they also have been talking about how ridiculous it is that the U U.S. Um, under Trump put Cuba back on the state sponsor of terrorism list and that Biden hasn't taken it off. And that was the subject of the meeting we had in the State Department. And I must say how thoroughly disappointing it was to hear uh, representatives in the State Department of the Biden administration saying, well, uh, we have to do a lot more work to figure out uh, how we can change this designation, because under Trump, uh, he has designated uh, Cuba as a terrorist because of the fugitives that Cuba is harboring. You know, it's always something different. It was the uh, Colombian rebels, but that's off the table now because uh, they have been engaging in peace talks that the Colombian government wants them to engage in, and the U.S. Ha the United Nations has uh, uh, sanctioned. Uh, so now it's these fugitives, and these fugitives aren't even considered terrorist by the United States. It doesn't fit into any uh, a definition of terrorism. Uh, and yet uh, the Biden administration is now using this as an excuse. And why? Well, they have some misguided, crazy notion that perhaps they could uh, get back uh, some of the seats in southern Florida, which we're going to see come November 8th, is totally delusional. Oh, um, heaven's sake. Now, they have allowed that to be the the uh, uh, driving force of their policy towards a nation of 11 million people who are being so harmed by these policies. Unbelievable. You know, it's funny. We just never learn from the mistakes of the past. Once again this week, the UN is going to vote on a resolution calling on the US to end its embargo of Cuba. This happens every year. It has for decades. And it'll likely approve the call for the 30th time in a row, right? 30th time in a row. That's 30 years. Meanwhile, even officials who work on Cuba policy from both sides of the of the political aisle say that the consensus position in the U.S. intelligence community has for decades been that Cuba does not sponsor terrorism. So what's the point? Is this really strictly politics? Is this really so cynical that it's for the purpose of trying to swing a couple of votes in Florida? Well, yes, it was interesting uh, to listen today to the talks by the various representatives at the United Nations about this issue. And one of them actually brought up the issue of 
the um, uh, political nature of this re-Southern Florida and said, we call on the United States to de-link its policy towards Cuba um, with its ambitions politically in Southern Florida. And I was so glad to hear that because most of the time uh, they just tiptoe around that issue. Uh, when that is the key issue. And the fact that the Biden administration has allowed uh, its policy to be governed by the most right-wing Cuban-American in Congress, um, uh, including a Democrat, Bob Menendez, uh, and uh, Marco Rubio from the Republican side, uh, just shows, I think, how depraved this administration is when it comes to Cuba. And... uh, that we in the uh, progressive community in this country uh, have to do more to put the pressure on these people and uh, shame them on this policy. We're having a protest this afternoon in front of the White House. If any of your listeners can get there at 3 o'clock, we're taking a plane load of um, food and medicines to Cuba this weekend, and we are ramping up our our calls to um, shame the Biden administration. Medea, I want to ask you briefly about politics. It looks like talk of a red tsunami next week might be more than just wishful thinking on the part of Republicans. 538.com is saying that the Republicans are going to win the Senate now. They're joined by the Cook Political Report and by Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. These are some of the most knowledgeable and important prognosticators in in politics. This could look like 1994 did for the Democrats. We could spend all day talking about what this means, but I wanna focus specifically on what it means for Ukraine. What do you think it means for US-Ukraine policy if the Republicans take both houses of Congress? We know that a lot of House Republicans wanna scale back military aid, some even wanna end it. What do you see happening? I think at least there will be a debate about this, given that the Democrats have staked out their position as the war party and don't allow for any dissent to even to talk about diplomacy. Uh, I think that the Republicans uh, do have very uh, uh, robust disagreements internally. The majority of Republicans still support all kinds of uh, weapons shipments to Ukraine Uh, And I think they will continue to have the majority if you include all the Democrats. Uh, But at least we'll have a chance to debate this issue, uh, to be uh, asking where this is all going, what is the end game, and hopefully uh, throw a little bit of a monkey wrench into this uh, massive uh, call for uh, more and more involvement in the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And what about Iran? I I believe that there's a real possibility of hostilities with Iran. Um, And I'm not saying that it would be based on an Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia. The Iranians have been cracking down on domestic unrest. More than a thousand people went on trial yesterday, some for capital crimes related to these protests. First, tell us about the protests and how you think things will play out. I have no idea how things will play out. I think there is a convergence of a very, very um, uh, massive grassroots protest of women and men who've been fed up with all these years of an Islamic government that's been uh, dictating everything from uh, what they should wear on their heads to uh, all kinds of uh, legal restrictions that women have. Uh, And uh, yet thrown into that mix 
are the uh, geopolitical interests of everybody from uh, Israel to Saudi Arabia to the United States uh, to uh, right-wing groups like the MEK that used to be on the U.S. terrorist list but is now uh, a great friend of uh, of the U.S. and trying to overthrow the regime, uh, royalists from back in the days of the Shah. Uh, so you have a real—and uh, and separatists, you must add, the uh, Kurds um, who want a separate state, the uh, Balochistan and other separatists who see this as an, an opportunity to push for— uh, their political agenda. So it's a, uh, a big uh, mix and mess. Um, we don't know how this will play out. I think it's terrible, all of the repression against the peaceful protests um, that have been going on. And I have no idea if the uh, Iranian people are going to continue to bear the brunt of this repression and go out on the streets. Uh, and if the government will be able to continue to repress um, these protests and uh, what the outside powers are planning as they try to uh, potentially even carve up in Iran into smaller, less um, powerful states. Oof. Um, what about the possibility of hostilities between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. on one side and Iran? Do you think that this announcement yesterday was just a warning to the Iranians not to not to uh, attack Saudi Arabia? Do you think the Saudis are making this up in some kind of weird effort to improve relations with the Biden administration or to acquire additional arms? What are we looking at here? I have no idea. I feel like we're just beginning to see this play itself out. Um, before these protests in Iran, uh, there were a lot of overtures happening between Saudi Arabia and Iran to improve relations. And, of course, we've seen the deterioration of relations between Saudi Arabia and the United States. So this is a very fluid situation right now uh, that I think the Saudis are, on the one hand, uh, happy to thumb their nose at, at the Biden administration and say, you know, we are a powerful country. We don't need your uh, good housekeeping seal. On the other hand, um, there are people in Saudi Arabia who do want to make sure that uh, the Saudis uh, have a decent relationship with the United States and are probably eyeing Iran uh, as somewhere to um, go with the old uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Indeed. The New York Times Magazine on Sunday, Medea, has a cover story that's entitled The Untold Story of Russiagate and the Road to War in Ukraine. It alleges that there really was a Russiagate and that Paul Manafort was instrumental, along with his business partner, Konstantin Kalimnik, in hatching a plot that would eventually lead to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It doesn't say that Donald Trump was involved, but it lays out um, the idea that the Russian invasion of Ukraine – or not invasion, the, the, the conflict uh, – is the fault of Paul Manafort. This is a, a long article, and there are a lot of assumptions in it. But not only is the New York Times not able to admit that there was no such thing as Russiagate it concludes that Russiagate was so complicated that everybody else just got it wrong. Can you sort through this? What are your thoughts? 
Well, I can't sort through it because it is so complicated, and I haven't read the the piece. Uh, but I do want to say that I uh, that I feel that this, uh, the years that we have been subjected to about uh, RussiaGate and the the uh, power of Russia to not only influence but actually determine uh, the election of Donald Trump uh, really has led the Democrats to this point where uh, there is so much. Uh, Russia phobia uh, that we can't have a decent discussion of how to find a solution to the war in re- Ukraine. And it just shows how um, we get, uh, goes back to the beginning of our segment here about how propaganda uh, convinces the American people, or at least a an important portion of the American people, of something that uh, might not even exist uh, but yet primes the pump for even worse things like um, believing that U.S. involvement in this war in Ukraine is somehow in the interests of the American people. I also I saw this story. And again, it's it is very long. Right. And uh, I couldn't read it before the start of the show. But it does seem to hinge upon this idea that uh, you know, Manafort in a in some kind of dastardly way was trying to present a, uh, a uniquely terrible deal to Donald Trump to to carve up Ukraine. But to me, again, as a sort of a first reading of this article, it kind of it sounds like the deal presented adhered to the Minsk agreement, right, which was the peace deal that Ukraine and Russia agreed to after, uh, you know, conflict erupted in 2014 when the Donbass uh, decided, you know, feeling disenfranchised by their uh, government that they had voted for being overthrown, that, you know, they weren't being represented by that central government and they wanted to do their own thing. And what that thing is, the goal of that has evolved over time. But you know, it, it it just to me, again, it sounds like the, the presentation is that it is wrong to present uh, negotiation platforms, you know, that it was it is wrong to propose something that is a, a peace agreement that has actually already been agreed to by both sides. And I thought that was remarkable, especially in light of the fact that, you know, if if initial reports are true, uh, Ethiopia and the TPLF have just managed to end their hostilities. What do you know through negotiation? And so I don't know it to me. It furthers this idea that uh, negotiation is appeasement and that, uh, you know, this is a it is a new idea. Uh, this this idea of some kind of autonomous region in Ukraine's east. Right. Rather than something that was actually agreed upon by the warring parties. Well, I think the fact that the Ethiopians are, are reaching a, a historic agreement uh, is something that should give us hope in uh, renewed uh, um, support for diplomacy. Uh, the idea of uh, carving up Ukraine is not for the United States to um, uh, get involved in, but for the Ukrainians and the Russians to figure out. But it needs the um, the, the pressure from the international community. And I wanted to just uphold the uh, grain deal that had negotiated uh, Russia pulled out of for several reasons and has just been um, renegotiated as an example of how the international community, I think in this case the United Nations and Turkey and probably other uh, countries, came back in and said, 
uh, we need to get this going again. So, um, you know, negotiations are the way to solve uh, uh, conflicts. Uh, we know that. The Biden administration knows that. They've got some strange idea about, well, it's got to be negotiations when uh, we are, uh, we, the, um, the West and Ukraine are winning. And that's just such an absurd notion um, that, uh, one, they can win, and two, that negotiations shouldn't be starting now. And let's hope uh, after November 8th, maybe there will be more opening for negotiations. Just as an aside, Medea, Associated Press um, has breaking news. They just sent out a push notification about a Saudi prince, Abdullah bin Faisal al-Saud, one of the sons, one of the many, many, many sons of King Faisal. He's a graduate student in Boston at uh, Northeastern University. And it says here that after a fellow prince, a cousin of his, was imprisoned back home, Abdullah called some relatives from the U.S., called them in Saudi Arabia and said that he was a little bit upset about this and he was asking for some information. The Saudi government was listening to this call. And Abdullah recently returned to Saudi Arabia and after uh, a quick secret trial, um, he was given 30 years in prison, 30 years, just because he said over the phone in a private call that he was opposed to Mohammed bin Salman arresting members of the royal family. What do you make of that? There, it seems like there's just no softening at all in the position of Mohammed bin Salman. He's utterly ruthless. And I'm wondering if he's going to be able to keep this up over the long term. Well, he um, who would have thought that he would be able to uh, gain even a higher position after he uh, oversaw the chopping up of Jamal Khashoggi? Uh, I thought that would be his downfall. Uh, but he keeps doing uh, these horrific things. Uh, and uh, this latest example of this uh, unbelievable sentence um, is something that it seems like the Biden administration uh, doesn't even blink at. Uh, and the rest of the world seems to give uh, Mohammed bin Salman a pass for uh, whatever he comes up with. The level of surveillance and intimidation and um, uh, and repression uh, in Saudi Arabia is probably unparalleled in other places around the world. And yet uh, here Saudi Arabia is treated once again in the global community as a um, as a legitimate government uh, precisely because of oil and all the money it has. Finally, Medea, can you tell us about um, the Real Path to Peace event that Code Pink and others are hosting? How can people get involved and what's it all about? We are coming together to try to figure out how we build this community and this, this groundswell of support from the bottom up uh, to uh, call for negotiations and a ceasefire in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen politically how it's only the extreme right in Congress that has taken a position of questioning uh, the Biden administration's policies, uh, and that is not going to lead us to um, the kind of uh, movement we need to build in this country. And so I think it's to talk about um, what are the different sectors in this country that we can bring into this movement? How do we get the 
environmentalists involved? How do we get uh, people that are working on race issues, on student debt issues, um, the faith-based communities that have usually been the backbone of, uh, of a peace movement? Uh, how do we bring them all into a much larger and more effective network uh, that can call for uh, and can put effective pressure on Congress and the Biden administration. That was the boy, the voice of Medea Benjamin, who is the co-founder of the peace group Code Pink. She's also the author of a whole bunch of books, always topical, including her latest with Nick Davies, which is called War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with Jean Kiriakou, and we are going now to Brazil, where at least at the highest levels, it seems like the the question of who won that election and who has finally conceded it has been settled. Joining us to get into what that means and whether the message has trickled down to supporters on the ground is Jamarl Thomas. He's co-host of Fault Lines here on Radio Sputnik and also the host of the Progressive Soapbox on YouTube. Uh, thanks for being here again, Jamarl. Oh, thank you. No issues. Love it with you guys. How are you guys doing today? Uh, it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. We got some good breaking news about Ethiopia. So uh, I think that's uh, I, th- I think that's enough for a good day. Wait, right. What was the news about Ethiopia? Looks like uh, well, what the, was the news about Ethiopia? Looks like the government and the TPLF have come to an agreement on a permanent uh, cessation of hostilities. Oh, I have to look that up. I have to look that up. It just happened. You're not late on anything. Years. It like just was announced an hour ago. OK. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I've been following that story for so, so long. I've been so ensconced in what's going on in Brazil. I hadn't. I got to be honest, I've been I had blinders on. But yeah. that's good. That's great. I hope some there's some resolution to that in real terms. And, you know, in, uh, speaking of resolution in real terms, it does seem like uh, incumbent Jair Bolsonaro finally came out to address Brazilians yesterday. In his speech, he yeah. failed to formally concede the election to Lula, but he did pledge to continue to fulfill the requirements of Brazil's constitution. But then he apparently went to the Brazilian Supreme Court and said it's over. And his VP gave an interview in which he said, we lost the game. There are 58 million people who are unhappy, but they agreed to take part of the game. So now they need to calm down. And so I want to ask, what is the what's the mood in Sao Paulo today? And what uh, what are the state of the protests and blockades that were set up after this election? So it's interesting. Let's go into a speech first, because there are parts of the speech that I am enamored by. Mm-hmm. Right? And I don't mean that in the positive. It just means okay. it's just wild. So 44 hours of silence, basically. Didn't say squat. Um, he came out. He was flanked by about a dozen of allies and ministers. Um, and lame duck President Bolsonaro basically gave a two minute speech. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is yes. after multiple days. He says, quote, I'll continue to follow the Constitution. He says, quote, it's an honor of being the leader for millions of Brazilians. He defended his record, specifically mentioning the pandemic and the Ukraine-Russian war. He pushed back on people who were basically calling him a fascist or for that matter, anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. He also said, quote, our robust representation in Congress shows the strength of our values, God, nation, family, and freedom, unquote. 
And I got to be honest, I have a personal hatred of people using words like this. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what those words mean. So when people talk about these kind of emancipatory terms, nation and God and freedom and everything else, that can be applied to pretty much anything. Those things are basically words like emotional touchstones. They're Mm -hmm. not necessarily real things. It's not practices, you know, a feeling thing that he's basically trying to get to people. Regarding the protesters, to get to your point, quote, peaceful protests will always be welcome, but our means cannot be those of the left, which always harm people, invading property and preventing the right to live, unquote. Now, Uh, that's not, he didn't tell the people to go home. (laughs) He didn't concede the race. He didn't even mention Lula in the speech. And so, from the standpoint of the protests, supposedly, the cops have started making headway, even though a few of these protests are still basically going. This is based on yesterday. The thing is, much of the reporting has basically vanished on the protests. Like, it seems that the moment that Bolsonaro came out, everybody basically stopped talking about the protests. That said, right here, Brazilian public prosecutor office opened an election fraud investigation against National Highway Police Director Silvini Vasquez. Um, this is the Bolsonaro supporter that was responsible for setting up roadblocks, despite the fact that Morales, Alexander de Morales, head of the electoral court, the Supreme Electoral Court, forbid that. He basically forbid any such action. He did it anyway, basically ignored the court. Mm. He was dragged in, read the riot act, told he would be charged, what, $20,000 an hour, taken out of his position and basically and potentially put in jail if he didn't comply. Okay, fair enough. He complied. But then the protest started. And you saw video, like social media video, of some of the highway police basically out there with the protesters, as opposed to getting rid of those protesters. Now, the police have said up to, I think it was like 8 o'clock last night, that they removed over 300 of the protesters or um, of the blockades. But some of the blockades apparently remain. This was, again, last night. The reporting on it this morning hasn't necessarily been all that adept. But the question, honestly, and there's some video of them basically using water cannons in order to get rid of some of the protesters. Right here, mm-hmm. Brazilian authorities said on Wednesday they're making headway on their effort to clear blockades set up across the country by truckers. Um, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're making headway, according to the police. Now, the court made the point of saying that the police were not following their orders because the court said, get rid of those protesters by any means necessary, paraphrasing. The Supreme Court of the land came out back, Alexander de Morales, or Meres, I always screw his name up, it's Mortis, there's no L in it, um, basically saying, look, this, the court, the electoral court is right, do your job. Now, this ended up with them pulling in state cops in order to try to do the job of federal cops. But all things being equal, according to them, they're clearing out many of the protesters. That last line in his speech, though, right here, where he gets into this thing talking about a right to live, those protests have been blocking energy, food, they blocked dialysis patients trying to get the treatment. Mm-hmm. They blocked vaccine or, you know, the makings of vaccines and everything else. Mm-hmm. Some of the stores thought they were going to be basically empty if those protests kept going. There were protests in the past in Brazil that was able to basically choke off the ability from things to get from point A to point B. Some of the truckers were calling for an overthrow of the government to ignore the election. Other truckers made the point of saying we're going to the military because the military backed balls and arrow and they are helpless on this. I don't see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't see that happening at all. And for the most part, people have basically gone about their way and trying to get back to their life. Yeah. Um, not to mention blocking airports and shutting their flights. Right. So from the standpoint of the mood of the public, the public is split. It literally, it legitimately is split. I've talked to people, people who speak English in a way, who are over the moon for Lula. I've talked to other people who hated the fact that Lula is in and basically would say, well, Lula's, all of the ills of Brazil are Lula's fault. 
Because like, and I, I was like, yeah. Why do you think they're Lula's fault? Bolsonaro has been in office for the last what four years. Yeah. They said no, no, no. Lula was in office for twelve years. All of the problems with him and Dilma Rousseff, they did it. So the public is still split on this, but I haven't necessarily seen this thing. I'll put it this way. People that I've talked to that have wanted Bolsonaro, they had no issue telling me that they wanted Bolsonaro, and they had no issue telling me that they didn't like Lula. Yeah. So he is coming into a divided government either way, and he is going to have to deal with a hostile Congress or Congress that was basically in Bolsonaro's camp, and he is somehow going to have to make that work. It's fascinating. I am super excited that Lula won. I am very curious on what this means in practice. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to ask also about um, turnout, right? Uh, Lula got more than 60 million votes. That's the most of any candidate in Brazil's history. Of course, that only put Uh him ahead of Bolsonaro by uh, fewer than two points. A Um, little than two percent. Yeah. Yeah. Does this mean that turnout was incredibly high? And I also wonder if it means that, you know, despite the slim margin of victory, and as you say, Lula is going to come into a very divided uh, legislature, but you know, right. maybe the maybe the sheer number of votes he got kind of reflects a, a stronger mandate than you might think. Um, oh, man, this country is divided. Yeah. Like it's it's Lula in his speech. Lula made the point of saying um, you had two political systems and two political forces that went head to head and the country basically chose him. And that's all intents and purposes true. Now, keep in mind, for Brazil, electoral participation is compulsory. You've got to do it. Now, if you don't do it, there's going to be a fine, or you need to come up with an extremely good excuse for them not to give you that fine. And even with that, if you don't necessarily pay the fine, there are um, issues with taxes, meaning they do something in regards to your taxes in order to penalize you for not necessarily voting. So I don't necessarily know. Maybe it's just because the population increased. In which case, you get more people that are basically coming to the polls. Um, you may have more people who may be just eligible just by the inertia of um, population growth. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I can't necessarily answer that one completely directly. Um, but from the standpoint of a mandate, that's a tough one. I mean, yeah. like, is anybody winning by 2% the mandate? Yeah. It's that part. I mean, that is the, the so question. I, yeah. That's the, and that's, that one is hard to answer. I got to say, I would say no, just because 2% is so narrow. Mm-hmm. By the same token, Lula is coming to an office very different than what he came into when he first left. He left with an 80% approval rating, most popular politician ever. Yeah. I mean, at very least in, in Brazil and around the world at the time. This is not that year. I think it was like 2003. This is not 2003. This is something else. So not only is he dealing with a divided Congress, he's dealing with a public that is very contentious between the two sides. He's also going to have to deal with adverse economic conditions in a way he didn't necessarily have to deal with before, especially with issues of COVID, the war itself, inflation, gas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But the difference is Lula is going to be making inroads with other South American leaders. Some of the things that he said up to this point in those speeches, um, reiterating the notion of BRICS, making connections. He's already talked to Maduro. And so you would imagine he's going to make connections probably with Cuba. I think I mentioned this yesterday. I was right on this. Mm -hmm. Make probably connections with Cuba. His associations with Russia and China are probably going to get closer. And he's going to be looking for a South American, let's say, a bringing together of these South American governments from an international relations standpoint. And so uh, I, I would I, I would honestly say look for there was even talk about a different currency, like a South American, like a pan-South American currency. So these are big ideas. Whether he can fulfill these big ideas in practice is always a secondary question, right? 
Yeah. But at the very least, this notion of organization and cooperation with Latin American and South American countries is definitely on his agenda and the top of his agenda. Oh, what? hunger. He's made the point of trying to get rid of hunger in the country, saying it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's far too long that we have all of these people who are basically starving and everything else. This is something we wanted to eliminate and giving everybody a home. Basically, anybody that needed a home, home is life. Oh, I love that. God, I love that. <laughs> Let me, me ask you. There's no excuse. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm no, there's out. no excuse for homelessness. It's a great plan. I'm I'm with you. I want to ask if if you are seeing that there is any kind of, uh, you know, personal analysis, evaluation of of what is happening or what has happened with um, polling on Bolsonaro among Brazilian pollsters, right? Because (laughs) Bolsonaro's support consistently was underestimated. Uh, I think this, Uh you know, probably lends itself to some of the thinking that, I mean, this is sort of bringing two questions together, right? But uh, some of this thinking that like, oh, it was stolen, it was stolen, that, you know, the polls were misrepresenting us, et cetera, et cetera. So do, do you see any kind of analysis uh, about Brazilian pollsters, by Brazilian pollsters, about why they were so wrong about the levels of support for Bolsonaro? Yes. Just before the election, um, not necessarily for the runoff, but definitely for the original election. Now, Bolsonaro, like you said, he's, they've been complaining about this, people in his camp, because their argument is, OK, these posters are doing this on purpose. They're trying to underplay my support. And in doing so, they're trying to basically help steal the election. Now, they wanted to criminalize posters like Bolsonaro supporters in Congress wanted to basically criminalize posters. Mm. Now, the polling firms made the point of saying like that it wasn't intentional and not just that intentional, that. Basically, some of the underplaying came from some people who just didn't want to talk to them yeah. who were back in Bolsonaro. Yeah. They made the point of saying different populations. They said some people changed their vote at the last minute to Bolsonaro. And so their thing is like, look, we're not doing this on purpose. This is not a situation where we basically came out and tried to downplay um, Bolsonaro. That wasn't it. Right here, they said they blamed a variety of factors, including outdated census data, hampered their ability to survey a statistical representation of sample voters. The firm said that the polls were also undercut by a larger than expected wave of voters that switched balls and arrow from third party candidates. Also, it says some they believe that when they were doing those surveys, that some conservatives didn't just they didn't answer. They say a sure older voters far exceeded expectations, potentially because of government announcement this year that voting was a new way to establish proof of life and keep retirement benefits active. So they're trying to say that, look, there are a myriad of factors that went beyond just our ability to talk to people and make a statistical model in order to predict the polling itself, that it wasn't intentional. However, if it was me and I was somebody who was back in Bolsonaro, I would take issue also. And the reason I say this, it's not that I think they were trying to be dodgy on purpose. If you think back to the United States, when you have somebody like Ryan Paul Mm. or somebody like Bernie Sanders, they intentionally over and over and over again underplayed the support that these guys were basically getting. And the reason is pretty straightforward. If oftentimes people will aggregate themselves around people who they think are winners. So if this person has a large majority, for example, they would do Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton has all of these electoral votes. Well, they were counting superdelegates into the vote tally itself to make it look like this is an insurmountable lead. The idea of being it's no point in you even giving your vote to Sanders because look how far Hillary Clinton is. And you have some people who would look at that and say, OK, well, she's going to clearly win. I'm just going to support her. And so Balls and Arrow supporters, this is one of those, um, what is it called? I can't think of the name of it. It's like this kind of test where if you 
have, let's say, if you tell 10 people in a room, you have all of those people who are basically on the same side, meaning they are part of the experiment. You show them, you, you ask them a question. It, it's clearly a wrong answer that, let's say, six or seven other people are going with. That guy may actually, knowing it's a wrong answer, still lump into the group because he thinks that the group knows something more than he knows, despite the fact that he knows absolutely as a flat fact that it is untrue. It's like, this is a square. And he's like, no, that's a circle. Seven other people said it's the square. What does he say? 30% of the people will say, okay, that's the square. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if you're trying to get people to basically accrue to one particular side in the voting block, and you want to basically show a, a numerical advantage that is so vast that it makes it seem like there's no capability to get around it. Well, on some level, if you or me, and you're looking at that from the standpoint of Sanders, I think they're dummying the votes or they're dummying the records in order to kind of aggregate people on the side. I don't think that's what happened. I mean, the pollsters are basically infuriated that they're being threatened in this way. Mm. And then, like you said, they made all of these excuses, basically saying this is the reason why our vote tally was off. Yeah. Now, from the standpoint of the current election, meaning the one that took place in the runoff, I'm unclear on that one. I haven't seen an analysis, per se, on the pollsters and everything else from that one. And by the way, from the standpoint of the left, that election could have been close like that because the cops were screwing with people getting to the polls. That's what I wanted Being to ask. Right have we an heard argument. any more about these yeah. uh, allegations of voter suppression by the Federal Highway Police? No, we haven't heard any more allegations, but right here. Brazil's public prosecutor's office has opened up an election fraud investigation against National Highway Police Director Silvini Vasquez. Mm-hmm. Now, this was the guy that was head of the federal police and that was pro-Bolsonaro. I mean, he put it on social media that he wanted Bolsonaro to win. Yeah. Well, the Supreme Electoral Court forbid him from doing anything towards the election like that. He did it anyway, not to mention, like I said, the protests and everything else. So I haven't seen anything else from the standpoint of that, because I guess they look at it as Lula won. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. But if the right wing is going to complain about the polling, the left wing certainly could turn around and say, well, look, maybe that result would have been larger if indeed the police weren't screwing around with the vote tally. So that goes both ways. That totally goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Jamal Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You can hear more of Jamal on Fault Lines, on The Mornings, on Radio Sputnik. You can find him on the Progressive Soapbox on YouTube. Uh, Jamal, take care. Enjoy the rest of your time in Brazil. Uh, Thanks, guys. Have a good one. You too. We'll see you later. We are going to take one last quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back with some very exciting breaking news headlines. It always happens toward the end of our show. Uh, We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll talk to you in one sec. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And if you heard that note of confusion in my voice, it's because I'm trying to make sense of a very interesting tweet by Stephen Donzinger, who we've spoken to on this show before, uh, saying that uh, he's discovered Chevron, the oil company that he has been engaged in battle with for the past uh, more than a decade now, uh, after winning an unprecedented settlement from its previous incarnation against indigenous people in Ecuador uh, and has been uh, punished, uh, persecuted and prosecuted for it ever since. Anyway, he says he's discovered that Chevron is paying huge sums to manipulate Google search engines to defame me. 
And there is a graphic here about uh, Chevron's paid search trends. Unfortunately, I don't understand anything about how paid search trends work. So this might be a story that we have to revisit in the future. But you know, if I could interrupt you for one second, um, Northrop Grumman Corporation did the same thing to me after I filed a lawsuit against them in the summer of 2020. That lawsuit's still pending. But all of a sudden, um, the the search term John Kiriakou just skyrocketed mm-hmm. uh, on Google. And um, a, a tech engineer friend of mine sent me several reports to help me get to the bottom of it. It wasn't, you know, John Kiriakou, CIA whistleblower, like mm-hmm. I normally see. It was John Kiriakou, convicted criminal, convicted felon, um, weakened our country, Tra- he was a traitor to America, that kind of thing. And I'm like, where the heck did this come from? And he was able to show me, just like Stephen Donzinger shows in his tweet, mm-hmm. how the optimization originated with Northrop Grumman. All you have to do is pay Google and say, you know, they say, we're going to make these tweets or a press release or whatever, a comment on some website. And here's $10,000. We want you to put this as the first thing that pops up when somebody searches for uh, John Curiel. So Kiriak. that's what it means. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's very cynical. Yeah, that's terrible. Huh. Okay. Well, thank you, John. And also, real bad. Sounds real bad. You shouldn't be able to pay to have, you know what I mean? You shouldn't be able to pay to defame people online. Boy. Media yeah, and they get away with it. Uh, speaking of uh, social media scandals, it looks like the White House deleted a tweet about Social Security uh, after there's this Twitter process where readers can add context. Uh, Twitter users can add context that they think people want to know. So the White House tweeted about seniors getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years. Uh, And the context added was that they're going to get this benefit because the cost of living is so insane. Uh, And the White House, I guess, just deleted the tweet, which is pretty funny. Wow. Yeah. Way to go. Wow. Yeah. Somebody wasn't thinking. Uh, Also, so we haven't mentioned this on the show, but I guess Joe Biden is going to deliver a big speech tonight. He's going to talk about democracy. Uh, His people say he is going to make clear what's at stake in these midterm elections. Uh, What's at stake is quite a lot. Everyone has a role. You got to vote. Democracy protects people, blah, blah, blah. He's giving the speech at Union Station. Yeah. Which is, Why would he do that? I don't know. And it seems like really not welcome news for anyone who wants to use it as a transit station. Right. The metro, right. the metro goes there. Amtrak goes there. It's a huge hub. Uh, the idea of shutting it down for this speech uh, seems like it's going to inconvenience a, a whole lot of people. But I guess my friends in Los Angeles complain every time there's a presidential visit because with traffic there as bad as it is. Uh, it gets that much worse Mm -hmm. because the the Secret Service closes off so many roads. But closing down Union Station, it's going to just paralyze the city during rush hour. Yeah, it does kind of seem unfortunate. I'm going to be very far away from there, but, you know. Uh, I also wanted to, uh, John, we we haven't gotten to mention your old friend Lindsey Graham, 
Uh, but there right. has been a court decision that affects him. The Supreme Court on Tuesday uh, refused to block a subpoena from a grand jury in Georgia that was seeking testimony from the senator about his activities uh, following the 2020 presidential election. So they want him to testify about any um, you know, possible attempts to interfere with that process. Uh, right. what, is, what does this mean for Lindsey Graham? This is an ongoing problem with Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, I've joked on the show many, many times. He's a show horse. He's not a workhorse. He's not a guy who writes legislation. He's a guy that gets himself on TV three or four times a day. Um, Lindsey Glam, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And the downside to that is that he tends to open his mouth when he should actually keep it shut. And he involves himself in issues that don't concern him. Well, because he's a sycophant of Donald Trump, he jumped into this situation in Georgia where Trump was trying to get the fake electors um, elevated uh, to try to uh, to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. Lindsey Graham had nothing to do with Georgia, but he involved himself purposefully. Yeah. And as it turns out, there is a price that comes with doing something like that. Now, he has fought and fought and fought all the way up to the Supreme Court to not have to testify. And the Supreme Court said, sorry, Charlie, you're going to have to testify and explain your actions on that day. Yeah. And who knows, there, there could be even, you know, criminal uh, referrals that come out of this. I mean, my understanding is right now, Lindsey Graham is not Lindsey Graham's not accused of anything. They just they want him as a witness. That was what my reading of this from a couple weeks back, I think, when it first surfaced. Yeah. So they just want him as a witness. He was making all these uh, calls uh, to the Georgia um, attorney general. Yeah. Lindsey Graham sticking his nose in where it's not needed. Oh, I just can't stand that. (laughs) I I really I, I hate it. Also, uh, what's you know, it's like it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Can you imagine Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren, Lauren Boebert, who just got her GED, by the way? Yeah. Can you imagine them a- actually authoring legislation? That's the difference between a workhorse and a show horse. I just hopped over to Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account for a second because I wanted to see what she had been <laughs> tweeting about uh, Brazil. But, yeah, it's a dark place. Um, <laughs> keeping in the theme of, of maybe some good news. Uh, There was news yesterday from uh, Marijuana Moment that says uh, Chuck Schumer, in a debate with his uh, election opponent, uh, said that Congress is getting very close to introducing and passing a marijuana bill with provisions covering banking access for legal businesses and expungements of past convictions. Uh, He said. He's been working in a bipartisan way with Democrats and Republicans to take the Safe Banking Act which allows financial institutions to involve themselves in cannabis companies and lend money to them, but also, uh, in his words, does some things for justice, including expunging a record. Um, So, you know, he's saying expunging these records is important and we are getting closer. We may be able to get something done rather soon, which is terrific, right? Terrific. But at the same time, Joe Biden needs to get on the stick and and take take marijuana off of the schedule of uh, of uh, DEA drugs. Yeah. 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 It's also, of course, this is being done because now there's money to be made at it. You know what I mean? I think it's probably uh, worth noting that a measure to expunge sentences is going along with a way to facilitate, uh, you know, banks and big financial institutions getting more involved with these businesses. 
Yeah. Yeah. This is a, it's a positive move. It's a shame it's taken so long, but you know what? It's in the right direction. So I think we should, uh, we should gladly accept what we can get. Yeah. Uh, another story that has been floating around here is, uh, <laughs> we knew this already, right? But there's been yet another study about plastic recycling that finds that it is not a thing. Uh, only, uh, something like 5% of all of the plastic generated by U.S. households in 2021 was recycled. Uh, apparently, the plastic recycling peak uh, came in 2014 at 10%. It's been decreasing since then. It was always a scam to get people to continue buying plastic and not freak out about it. And here we have oh. yet more evidence that, uh, yep, if you needed to know, again, that's the case. And please apply past behavior to your analysis of present behavior by these very companies. They have not changed their spots. They were lying to you a decade ago. They were lying to you three decades ago. They are 100% lying to you today about whatever they're planning to do to protect the environment or the climate. That's I, I cannot stress you that know, enough. <laughs> they are lying. I'd like to add something. I'd like to add something to that too. Mm -hmm. um, two years ago, uh, Arlington County, Virginia, where I live, um, sent every resident a letter saying that we need to stop recycling glass. Mm -hmm. uh, glass is easily recycled, yeah. but the reason why uh, Arlington County stopped doing it was because uh, the Chinese just didn't want to take it anymore, mm -hmm. right? Apparently, all of our glass is recycled in China and then sold back to us as new glass. Yep. That worked for a long time. Right now, apparently, it's not working. And so we haven't recycled glass for more than two years. In in Manchester, New Hampshire, where my sister lives, uh, well, I went to visit her once and I went to um, put some plastic in recycling and she had only one garbage uh, can. I said, where's your recycling? And she said, oh, um, they do it in a weird way up here. She said, we just throw everything in the garbage and they claim that they go through the garbage later no. at this recycling facility and they pull all the recyclables no, out. I said, there's that no is way. nuts. <laughs> that's not true. There's that's no way nuts. that's true. And she said, she said, yeah, nobody, nobody believes that, uh, but that's what the government up there tells them. God, imagine, imagine living somewhere you actually could believe your government. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be very refreshing. Yeah, yes. Well. Yes, indeed. We'll come, we'll cross our fingers and see what tomorrow brings us because that's all we've got time for today. I want to say thanks to everybody who joined us. Of course, thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>